Hi, I'm Zane Lowe, and this is Songs for Life. This is the show where we ask our guests to choose 10 songs that have soundtracked the key moments in their life. Today, I'm joined by Rita Wilson. She's had a long and varied career as an actress, a movie producer, and a music artist. Born and raised in Hollywood, she's been a familiar face on TV and in movies, including roles in classics like Sleepless in Seattle and Runaway Bride. With a knack for spotting a great story, she's produced the hit movies Mamma Mia and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. More recently, she followed her dream of becoming a music artist, releasing four successful albums. She's also a very proud mother, and together with husband Tom Hanks, they've used their voice to raise awareness for good causes in their community in LA and around the world. To hear all the songs in this episode, search for the playlist Songs for Life in Apple Music. Rita Wilson, where do I begin? My goodness, what a life. What a brilliant life lived thus far with much more to achieve. And uh, that's why we're here to talk about your journey to this point. And what makes it unique for me and unique for you, hopefully, is that we're going to ride this through the DNA of music, which I know means so much to you. So nice to meet you, Zane. It's a pleasure to be here. Really is. If you could look back on your life to date, on your life story and sum it up in a phrase, or, you know, a short paragraph, how would you put it into words? I would use the Oscar Wilde quote, which would be, it's never too late to be what you might have been. <laughs> or something wow. like that, right? You dropped that one very quickly and very well. Like I was expecting you to spend at least a minute thinking about this one. You were like, oh no, I got this. No, it's totally applicable. That's why. I remember hearing that quote And really feeling like, yes, why are there limitations to when we're supposed to do something? And that was really important to me. And not to sound super name droppy. Oops, what was that noise? It was a name. Let me pick it up. Um, A friend of mine who is an incredible singer-songwriter and a successful person by the name of Bruce Springsteen said Mm. to me once uh, when we were on a little driving trip, He was talking about songwriting and it was an amazing conversation. It went on for a while because we were trapped in a car together. And I said to him, all right, then Bruce, what makes me think that at this point in my life, I could be starting writing songs? You've been doing it all your life. What makes me think I could do it? And he said to me, Reitz, because creativity is time independent. And I thought that was such an illuminating idea because who's to say that there's a clock on when you're going to find your voice or when you're going to be creative? Like there's an hour-long conversation just discussing that car ride with Bruce Springsteen, which we will have at a later date because because you're the only one who could tell us everything that he had to say. It was a great Bruce Springsteen impression nonetheless. And we'll get get more into the boss a bit later on in this conversation because naturally... He shows up. Um, it didn't start with music for you. In fact, it actually, you know, you you made that more, I would say, obvious step as far as Los Angeles is concerned and Hollywood is concerned into, into television um, and subsequently into movies. You were a Hollywood kid. You were born and raised in Hollywood and ultimately found yourself having your own star unveiled on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And I wonder how that felt. What were the emotions like on that day, knowing that this was happening probably a few yards from where you used to run around as a kid? It was a lot of stuff. It was, Hollywood was my hometown. We grew up there. My mom was Greek. My dad was Bulgarian. I'm a first generation American. And yet I knew that people came from all over the world Mm -hmm. to come to Hollywood and stake their lives and make their careers. 
But it was also just my hometown where we got our school clothes and we went to the local diner and had milkshakes and had dinners and went to the movies at Grauman's Chinese. And so for me, walking on the boulevard, which we used to do, I would always see those stars. And I thought that was really for some somebody else. Like that wasn't ever even a dream. I never thought, oh, I'm going to have one one day. It never, it never occurred to me. So um, there was that element. I think there was also the element that it was on a day that was significant in what it said, meaning that it was um, the day that my fourth album was coming out called Halfway to Home. But it was also the day that I had my bilateral mastectomy for breast cancer. So it was this kind of pendulum of really great memories and kind of painful memories, but at the same time, really being in the moment of understanding that life is one day at a time and every day really is a gift. When did you first recognize in yourself that there was a future for you or something for you in the arts, in the creative space, that it was a good fit? The first time I realized that I had already been doing my job, which was acting for about 10 years or so. Um, as an actor, um, I started doing a lot of television commercials and a lot of episodic TV, but it wasn't until I, I did a play that the director said, you seem to be comfortable on stage and have you ever thought about getting formal training? And I didn't even know what that was because I was always working. So it was, just, it was just a job for you, Rita. It was really before that moment. This was just a gig. This was a way to make some money and get by and contribute. Exactly right. And my dad was a bartender. So at a very young age, I was already making the same amount of money as my dad. And I thought, this is a great gig. Like I've got money and I can, you know, buy my car and pay my insurance and, you know, eventually have an apartment. But acting and doing commercials gave me the money that I could then afford to go to drama school, which I did do. And Mm. I went to Lambda over in London, your own old stomping grounds the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. But it really wasn't until 2013 when I came in contact with Cara Diaguardi, the amazing songwriter, that she asked me this very simple question, which was, what was it that I wanted to do? And I thought, well, I mean, I have to do anything to be able to write a song like you, but I don't know how to do that. And I've never done that. I don't read music or play an instrument. And she said, well, that's okay. Do you have something you want to say? And then when she mm. said that, I really had this like visceral gut reaction, like, yeah, I have something I want to say. And she said, I'll write your first songs with you, which she did. And wow. um, fortunately, that opened the doors. Storytelling has played a big role in your music and the albums that you've made and also in the movies that you've made and the art that you're attached to and, and attracted to. Bobby Gentry, Ode to Billy Joe, one of the greatest stories ever committed to music. This is the first song on the playlist. This is the first song you've chosen in Songs for Life. Why? Well, because it was the first song that I really felt connected to. I I think it came out in 67 or something. So maybe I was 11 years old and I just was mesmerized by it. Like what was going on on that bridge? And why is this family talking about passing the peas instead of asking the question, what happened? They were avoidant 
And I came from this Greek family that was, everything was out on the table, literally, you know? So Mm. um, I couldn't understand why they were being so mysterious and something bad went down on there. And But it was also a song that I loved so much that I would get up and sing it at the drop of a hat. You know, my parents would say, Rita, go sing that song, Oh to Billy Joel. And uh, I would get up and sing it to anybody who wanted to hear it. You know, Mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Was it a passionate household? You talked about things being left on the table. Was it a passionate household that you grew up in? It was a very open and warm household. We didn't argue. We didn't fight. It wasn't like that, but it was just very open. You know, my parents were really loving people. So I really have to thank my parents for never stopping me from doing what I wanted to do. It's funny, you know, because I think when we take a look at the at the journeys that we choose for ourselves, sometimes they are in reaction, albeit with the best of intentions, to the life we've seen in front of us, the life that our parents have lived. And your parents lived a very different life to the one that you created for yourself. And I wonder whether looking back on that now, that inspired you to to try things and take risks. That's such a good question because my parents were not risk takers later in their lives, but they had taken enormous risks to get to America. That's right. Like my dad escaped Bulgaria. He went to a labor camp and escaped the labor camp, risking his life, but eventually made it over to the States where he met my mom. My mom was actually born in America and went back to visit her family village on the border of Greece and Albania when her dad Mm -hmm. unexpectedly died. And they were then told to stay there instead of coming back to America, a widow with four children. So she was raised in this little tiny village and eventually had to escape that when they knew it was getting worse. So I think when they came to America, they were like, okay, we don't have to take any more chances, which is odd because I think my dad would have liked to have had his own business, a, a restaurant or uh, something like that. But I, my mom sort of quashed the idea a little bit because I think she was just fearful. That's obviously resonated with you throughout your life because the next song on Songs for Life that you've chosen is um, a song that you've written and recorded and just recently released, which is called Where Is My Country Song. And this is a tribute, really. This is a song that reflects everything you just spoke of and more. It really is. I mean, I started thinking about my mom and it was a different period of time when I was growing up, but She was a housewife and never worked a typical job a day in her life, but she was a housewife and she cooked and she cleaned and she sewed our clothes. And I started thinking about women in general who are doing those sorts of jobs and not really ever having the spotlight on them in a way that shows kind of value. We value all sorts of other things, celebrity and uh, that Mm. sort of thing, but we don't really take a look at the, the people that are running the show in a way. And those to me are the moms and sometimes they're single moms. Sometimes they're people who work in agriculture or factories or in offices or behind the, the doors that we don't see, warehouses that are making sure we're getting all of our stuff delivered to us. And yeah, I really thought no one's writing about them. And I wanted to sort of 
say that, you know, I, I saw them and I wanted to kind of tell their story in a way. Cause I don't know how it feels to be the girl in the high heels. Looking in the review, there's no me and you. So how can all these songs be real? It's not lipstick in a red dress. More like a name tag and a paycheck. I wanna believe, but they don't know me. The radio keeps getting it wrong. So tell me, where's my country song? Teenage years are funny ones because at the time you're just living with this reckless abandon and it just the whole world is yours and you know, just don't look left, don't look right, just look forward. And it's it's probably the most narcissistic point in your life. But that's the problem. Um, I wish I had that. I wish I had been that rebel. You know, I never had a rebellious stage. It's like such right. a drag. I think I'm, I should do it now. I don't know. I think I, I'm going to go to Burning Man when it's back and I'm going to wear a bikini and uh, ride bikes with I, neon headdresses or something. I don't know. But I've never been that rebel. Have you seen Rita lately? No, but she is having one hell of a late midlife crisis. Let me tell you, she has fallen off so hard right now. Last time yeah. I saw she was so high in the middle of a field. Crazy. Just out of her mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when, you, when you're a teenager, when you look back on that time, you will recognize there are, there, there are always significant things that happened. Can you think of one thing that happened in your teenage years when you look back on it now that really changed your life? Well, yeah, it was two things. It was my first day of high school. Getting, I went to Hollywood High School and I was discovered by a photographer and I ended up being cast in a photo shoot for Harper's Bazaar magazine. The photographer was this famous photographer, Albert Watson, and um, that got me an agency, which got me working. And then mm. the second thing was getting my Screen Actors Guild card doing the Brady Bunch. I was not supposed to be auditioning for that, but I went with my girlfriend who was auditioning and I was a cheerleader in high school and she asked me if I would teach her how to do a cheer and she, I did. And she said, come to the audition with me kind of as moral support. And I, uh, they oh asked no, me, and then you got the part. You were, well, that, I, you were that friend? No, oh. I did not get that part that she was up for. I got a smaller part, but it did get me my Screen Actors Guild card. <laughs> wow, wow. Is it true that you're a DJ in school? Well, if you can call it a DJ, because we had dances in junior high, which is now middle school, and we had a mm. jukebox, and it was a real privilege to get to be the DJ or run the jukebox, because that meant you get to play all the songs for the dance. Now, back then, we had white lines, so you, the boys had to be on one side, and the girls had to be on the other, and that's how you would dance, separated, kind of like social distancing, by six feet. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds kind of familiar these days. <laughs> exactly. I think we're all going to go back to junior high and do dancing that way. And so, um, so yeah, so we would play all the songs, and uh, that was super, super fun. And one of the songs that I loved so much during that time was Dance to the Music. That always got everybody up and dancing. Getting back to TV in those early days, because if you take a look at the list of credits that, you know, over the over the first part of your career, 
it is just a what's what of every smash hit show at the time. You know, Happy Days, Three's Company, MASH. Were you on MASH as well? Yes, I, I was on that show twice. Just moving from set to set and working on all these legendary sets. Can you, how was that time? Oh my God, that, I love that you asked about the set because whenever I go into a studio now or a soundstage now at a studio, it is yeah. a sense memory of smell and aroma that there's nothing like in a good way. It's kind mm. of moist, it's cool air, it's the timbers, it is the cement of the floors. It's just got a completely distinctive <laughs> aroma. And what about Happy Days? I have to ask because I was raised on that show. I love doing Happy Days. I did a couple of those too. And uh, the first time I did it, uh, I was kind of a girl that was supposedly in love with Fonzie. And we had a scene where we had to come in together through, you know, the the opening doors, the saloon doors of Arnold's. And uh, when we were rehearsing, I rubbed Henry Winkler's hair like this, you know, just kind of affectionately. And he said, don't do that. And I was like, why? And he's like, because right now I don't have my hair on. But when we shoot it, I'm going to have it on. You can't touch it. And I was like, okay, I won't touch your hair. Wow. No problem. Not touching your wow. hair. <laughs> but the precociousness of you, like honestly, respect, to be on set playing a walk-on role and to be like, let me to touch the star of this show's hair right here. <laughs> That's serious. What was like, I thinking? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> respect. <laughs> Apart from the smells and the sensation of the set, you know, you talked about how songs just rubber stamp that, that memory for you. And we've got a classic from the Eagles, Take It to the Limit, which, which you've chosen at this moment in our journey through your life. Uh, why does this song reflect those early and exciting days of moving into the screen? So when I was doing TV um, and doing a lot of commercials, I had an offer to go to Paris and model in 1976. Mm. And it was a great offer. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I had applied to an acting class in Los Angeles called Charles Conrad. And it was the like it place to study acting at that time. It was Meisner technique and very hard to get into. And I had applied and they had no room. So I went to Paris uh, to model and it was not a great experience. I realized like I really didn't love modeling because it didn't allow you to have a voice. You just had to be there and you had to sort of like pose. Mm. Have, you know, whatever you were doing. And it, it well, just, sell the merchandise. That's sell what it the is. merchandise and sell the clothes and do that thing. And I liked it because it paid well. And I liked it because I could be in Paris, but I didn't like it because it didn't really give you much to do. And mm. um, so while I was there in Paris working, I got a call that the acting school had an opening and I could not have been out of there faster. <laughs> I was just like, boom, I'll be there next week. <laughs> and I <laughs> packed up all my things and I took off because I knew that I uh, wanted to get better at what I was doing and that there was this great class. So to me, that song signifies like, I'm on my way. I'm going. Yeah. I'm and going. also there's, there's such an American band that just getting on the plane and listening to the Eagles. I mean, that's the best cliche ever. <laughs> it really, it was the bicentennial of the United States. And it was like, 
Uh, everything about 1976 was just a really great year, and it felt very yeah. forward and very on the verge of something new. And take it to the limit one more time. Take it to the limit. Take it to the limit. Take it to the limit one more time. Being a Hollywood kid, acting, movies. You know, you were raised in an environment where that dream can come true and it has done for you. Big roles in movies like Runaway Bride, Sleepless in Seattle, you know, and a great career across TV as well. But you also made some really significant moves into producing and, and really sort of changed the game, I think, with in particular one movie, you know, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which at the time just didn't look or watch like anything else out there at, the, at that moment in time. What was it like when you first read that script or got introduced to that idea of that movie? And because it, it, it really is stands alone. Thank you. Uh, I always go and see plays in New York and off-Broadway and whatever. And I came back from a trip to New York and I thought, why don't I see plays in LA? I'm sort of discriminating against my hometown. So I looked in the paper on a Thursday, which is when they had the ads for plays and theatrical things. And there was a title and it just said, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I think it had Nia's name in it too. Nia Vardalos is My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I was like, that's a pretty funny title. I'm going to go see that. So I went to see it and it literally made me laugh so hard that I asked to meet her after the show and uh, she came out to say hello. And I said, this would make an amazing movie. And she said, I have a script. And I'm like, bring it. Wow. Like she's been waiting for you. The ad that I saw that day, she only ran one time. So if I had not seen that ad on that day, I would have never known about the play. It became the movie that we wanted to make, but it took us forever to get financing. No one wanted to finance I was going to ask you, how many no's do you think estimate? How many no's? All no's. Every studio turned us down. Every financier that was like legit at the time turned us down. And I think in some ways that movie introduced me to the idea that I could trust my taste in material and that I knew what was good or what felt good to me. And if maybe if mm. it felt good to me, maybe other people would like it too. But it was not easy. And, and I think that's the most important thing is that you may believe in something wholeheartedly and not get any validation for it at all. And you, it doesn't change your belief in something. You just kind of go, but I think it's good. Like, why doesn't anybody else figure it out? And so little by little, people did figure it out. So that was very exciting. It's such a unique love story, that movie. And that's something that you've really specialized in in the movies you, you've worked on is, is producing unique love stories, you know, comedies that have twists and tales and emotions, and it's all wrapped up into the fabric of life. And uh, that brings me to the next point in our playlist here of Songs for Life, which is um, how, do we, how are we going to get to the Bee Gees, Rita? How are we going to get there? We, we, have to talk about, we have to talk about romance pre-Tom. Uh, we have to talk about, we have to talk about what pre-Tom. that meant. <laughs> this is a safe space reader there was always somebody pre-tom um no. his name was brad and we'll talk about him in a second but um 
I, I just want to know, were you always a romantic? Because, you know, you don't make movies and believe in movies like that that have such a, a core value in romance unless you're a romantic at heart. Yeah, I love romantic songs. I really do. And if I could only write and sing sad songs, I'd probably be happy. But, uh, okay, when you have a breakup and your heart is broken, you think it's never going to get any better. You think it's always going to be this horrible place. And then the Bee Gees had this song, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? I mean, that is the perfect thing to say to anyone who's going through that. And you know, you're crushed. What are you going to do? You're crushed and you you think you'll this never fall in love again. This is Brad we're talking about, right? This but is Brad. Full disclosure, Brad <laughs> was my sixth grade boyfriend and he gave me a St. Christopher, which is what all the surfers used to wear. And he had it on his neck and he took it off and he gave it to me. And I kept it for years and years and years. I may still have it somewhere, who knows? But yes, Brad, Brad moved away and that's what happened. That was my broken heart. But what was really cool was he came to one of my shows and I got to, you know, reconnect with him maybe about four years ago. So now we follow each other on Instagram. Wow. I know. How can you mend this broken man? How can a loser ever win? Please help me mend my broken heart and let me live again. Looking these days, uh, he he was looking exactly the same. He had not <laughs> he had not really changed from sixth grade Brad, which is a good thing. I just would love to have had that conversation between the two of you, just to find out exactly. I mean, it must have been really nice, actually, just to come. You know, I think things like that that come back from the past often just feel good. It's like a good feeling. Yeah, you don't want people to, you know, melt down or something like that. You know, he was he was a really nice. Guy. <laughs> I should never have left. I should never have left. Um, Sing it, brother. Sing it. (laughs) Rita, you know, aside from everything you've achieved individually, you know, you've set the bar alongside, you know, your husband in terms of how a couple can carry themselves, I, I feel personally, with a sense of dignity, despite the level of attention and the level of celebrity, as you call it before, that comes along with being successful in your passion. I feel like you and Tom have made a really conscious effort through your relationship to to try to stay grounded in this space, but yet not run away from it? Well, I I think we were old enough when we got married. We didn't get married too young. We'd both had substantial long-term relationships. So we kind of knew what we didn't want and also what we wanted. But I Mm. also want to say that we're not alone. There are so many really solid marriages in Hollywood, but people don't tend to write about those because they're, there's no really, what's the story there? Oh, Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon have been married for 30 something years and Denzel and Pauletta and Ron and mm. Cheryl Howard. And there's so many people that that are, are out there, but it's not necessarily the story because it just, it's much more interesting to, to show how marriages fail and how people are bad to each other and I think we have shared values in that way. And um, we we want to be married to each other. So we have enormous amount of respect and 
try to be as loving as we possibly can to each other. And and it is important for us to be a part of our community in a way that feels really good. You know, our business has been great to us. And um, in any business, you're going to find people who have been married a long time and people who, you know, are in short-term marriages and married multiple times. And it's it's just the nature of our business, I think, that um, people put a spotlight on it in a way that makes it look like there's something different about it, but there really isn't. You know, Tom once said that uh, he thought you were cute when he first saw you on television. Do you sort of believe that there is one person out there for everybody and that you are ultimately drawn to each other if you just get out of the way and and trust the universe and trust the science? Do you believe in that? I do, but I wouldn't want to impose that on anybody else because how would you then be able to explain that, you know, there are so many other people out there for someone, mm. you know? But it's okay because it's a question for you because of your life story. And and I think it's such a fascinating story, the way that you've lived your life with this this kind of sense of real adventure. I just feel like it was always what it was about for you and is what it's about, right? Is the adventure. It is about the adventure, but I think Tom and I don't really want to change each other. Uh, I remember standing on a corner in New York and when we were dating and he was holding my hand, we were getting ready to cross the street. And he said, just want you to know that you don't have to change anything about who you are or what you do to be with me. And no one had ever said that to me before. And it was literally like a physical wave of emotion, feeling, warmth, energy went through my body. And I think if you're lucky enough to have that and kind of tend to it, then it can grow into something really beautiful. Should we lose each other in the shadow of the evening trees? I'll wait for you. Should I fall behind, wait for me Darling, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind, wait for me Yeah, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind, wait for me Such a beautiful selection from Bruce Springsteen of If I Should Fall Behind, Wait For Me, I'll Catch Up With You. That song, I believe Bruce wrote for Patty on the um, eve of their marriage, or so to speak. Mm. And to me, it really is about that because we're flawed human beings and we need each other if you're going to be in this union that we call marriage and you have to be there for each other, supporting each other and um, being patient with each other. So that song to me really says that because it's like, there are going to be good times and there are going to be dark times, but wait for me because I'll catch up. Sometimes we process things in different ways and the way you might deal with something is different than how yeah. I would deal with it. So it's kind of giving somebody the space to do that, but also telling them that you'll be there for them when they catch up to you. There's a little time earmark coming up in a few seconds to talk about some of the challenges because life is full of them and you've always been very transparent about yours, which is inspiring. But before we move into that space, what's a good time? Uh, well, let me just say a good time across the board 
is going to do with music. It's going to do with friends. It's going to do with laughs. That is the most basic moment of having a good time for me is just hanging out, laughing, and being yourself with the people that you love the most. I, I just, nothing better. Okay, time for the yang to the yin. What, um, what was a tough time? What was a really tough time for you? So a couple of tough times. I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer in 2015. I was doing a play on Broadway with Larry David called Fish in the Dark. And I had initially been misdiagnosed. And my gut instinct was saying, what's just, I don't know, it doesn't feel right. And a girlfriend of mine said, why don't you get a second opinion on your pathology? Because I'd been having these lumpectomies. And uh, I said, I've never heard that before. So I did. I got a second opinion on the pathology, the actual tissue. And it came back that I had cancer. So I had a bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction. And after a month went back to doing the play, um, when you have, when you go through something like that, it's scary. It's really, really, really scary. And, you know, make no mistake. You don't know what your prognosis is going to be. You, your doctors tell you certain things. You hope it's going to be good, but you don't really know. It was a lonely time because we had a son who was struggling with substance abuse. He's now sober. Tom was doing a movie in Hungary. So uh, we had to be separated for a little bit. And I really got to some thinking about a lot of things. Very thankful for my girlfriends and my friends who were um, around during that time. I mean, make no mistake, Tom was with me too, but it was, you know, he couldn't do anything about it. He was in the middle of making a movie as well. So about a year later, I was doing a writing camp and uh, I had this title, When I'm Gone, Throw Me a Party or something like that. And I wanted to write about the experience that I had, which was having the conversation with Tom about what I wanted if I were going to, you know, go before him, if I were going to leave this earth before him. And that's a very tough conversation to have with your partner. And also, I know from my instincts, if, if God forbid, I was having that conversation with someone I cared about, and that's a, that's a very realistic conversation to have, I would, my instincts would be to, to, to stop, to say, I don't let's not even entertain that as a reality. It's not even, it's not even consider that. Yeah. And I wonder whether that was Tom's instinct as well, or whether he was like, okay, let's go there. Let's go and embrace the situation and let's get through the other side of it. I can only speak from my own motivations. And that was really to say, this is what I want. And I want, you know, a party and I want to be, have all my friends there and I want them singing and dancing and telling mm. stories and, and celebrating that, you know, I, there, there are going to be time for tears and, and all of that. But any parent is going to say that you wish that, you know, you, you could be around to see your kids. Don't make me cry. Oh, man. <laughs> you want to see your kids grow and function and go to their weddings and be there for all those moments and all of that. So, you do have those serious conversations, but at the end of the day, I'm here, I'm five years clean, I'm talking to you and you're making me cry. So 
don't do that. You're going to be like Fozzie. Don't do that. Don't touch the hair. Don't touch the hair. Don't Um, touch the heart. (laughs) I think it's a good thing to be emotional about that. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the purest sign of love that you can have is that that's the part of it that is, it's the most selfless reaction to something that is actually personally attacking you. And yet, and yet the instinct when you're a parent is to feel for the people that you're going to leave behind and those experiences. And I, that is, as a parent, I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Hell of a song too. Hell of a party you wrote. (laughs) Thank you. When you finished writing that song, Rita, when you finished writing Throwing Me a Party, and um, I always ask artists how they feel when they've finished a song that really matters like that. After writing that song, I felt like it said exactly what I was hoping to say. And you never know what what's going to happen with these songs and how they're going to be received. And you just write them and put them out there and, and hope that somebody hears them and likes them. <laughs> So I felt really good about that song. I really did. And then when I played it for a couple of people, they thought it was really good. So you kind of feel like, okay, at least one person or two people thought, you know, I was on the right track or something. You don't know. I think every single songwriter who's trying to achieve anything needs to bear that in mind. Because if we tried to measure ourselves to the standards of people like Bob Dylan, we wouldn't pick up an instrument in the first place. Um, Exactly. I'm watching that documentary right now, uh, No Direction Home, and I'm riveted uh, by it. I'm riveted by it because he went through that same thing where you know, he went to England and within the two or three months that he was in England, he went to every single, you know, folk bar and he was studying all these people and it really influenced his work when he came back. You've chosen a Bob Dylan song and you said that finding this song gave you confidence to understand what great songwriting is. I was on vacation in 2001 and, you know, we had our iPods. Everybody was just getting iPods. And Mm. Mine was like somewhere else and I was too lazy to go run up the stairs to get it. So I just grabbed Tom's iPod and I was put the headphones on and I was listening to Shuffle Mode and this song came up and it was a Bob Dylan song and it was from the Time Out of Mind album. It was called Make You Feel My Love and it literally punched me in the gut. Like, what is this song? And I played it over and over and over again, like a kid would when you first got an album and you would lay down on your bed. And I could not believe this song was so beautiful. So I went and I was like, have you heard this song? This is like incredible. This song is like one of the best songs I've ever heard. And um, nobody was playing this song on the radio. The album won a Grammy. It was like, how could nobody have heard that song and just everybody, I don't know why that wasn't a hit. Like, it's just mind boggling. But what it taught me was even Bob Dylan can have a song as beautiful as that. And he's Bob Dylan. And nobody really looked at it in the way that you would think they could have looked at it. When the rain is
all of those things you described before sum up anyone who's going through an intense kind of love, but there isn't an intense kind of love like being a parent and no. watching your children grow and watching them struggle with their own challenges and have their own triumphs. Like, who would have thought that, you know, living vicariously through the eyes and lives of other people that you care so much for is actually more rewarding than living your own life to some degree. It's, it's really true. Like any success that my children have is a thousand times more magnified than your own. I don't know why that is, but it's just so satisfying. And I remember when I was expecting my first son, Chet, I was listening to Paul Simon's Graceland. Like I could not not have that album on. So there yeah. he is, you know, on big belly. We were renting a house at the beach and we're just dancing around and listening to that album. And it was also, you know, Paul Simon writing about going to Graceland with his son. You know, my traveling companion is nine years old. He is the child from my first marriage or something, that line. And I just thought, how beautiful to have that song, like as a parent and, and a child even, like, I just couldn't get enough of that album. And then after Chet was born, I would still listen to that. And I'd carry him around in one of those little snugglies, you know, and dance around the house with him. It was just the album of that summer and the album of those memories for me, you know, becoming a mother for the first time, expecting and, you know, God, I, I can't hear that today and not think of that at all. You know, that was just the time. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. And my traveling bags are ghosts in empty sockets. I'm looking at ghosts and empties. What kind of mum do you think, what kind of mother do you think your kids would, how would they describe you as a mother, do you think? <laughs> well, I think that they say I was funny, I was loving, um, that I, uh, you know, I, I laugh because one says, <laughs> says to me, I'd be so screwed without you. Um, I think I'm very present. So they would probably say that I'm always there for them and I believe in them. That's what they would say. I can't believe we've come to the end of this. It's like blink and you miss it conversation. For I me. can't it's been believe so it. Fast. I know. I can't believe it. And this has been so much fun. Let's be honest here because I, I know you're a truthful human. I can tell that you, you, you are an honest human being. Has it been fun going through your life like this with music today? Totally. Like this. I mean, the truth is, and I'm sure you could do this too, or anybody that you talk to could do it. It could go on for many, many chapters and many, many mm. songs and an encyclopedia of and albums of songs that could relate to different moments in your life. Yeah, It's been thoroughly enjoyable. I think of my parents who were married for 59 years and uh, the the song Thinking Out Loud that uh, was written by Amy Wadge and Ed Sheeran. And Amy and I have been writing a lot lately through FaceTime. So I call her Amy Wadge of Wales. And uh, <laughs> these songs that are love songs are, in, in this case, thinking out loud, it reminded me of my parents and hopefully 
you know, God willing, uh, me and Tom too, because if you're lucky enough to find that love in your life and that sort of acceptance that no matter what you look like or where you are in life, you'll still be together. And there's this beautiful line that I love. And darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways. Mm. Um, Maybe just the touch of a hand. I fall in love with you every single day. And I just want to tell you how I am. I mean, that's what it's about. It's really about just falling in love with that person every single day. And if you're lucky enough to have that, awesome. Darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. I'm thinking about how people fall in love in the Songs for Life 